Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 45, I'll read through um, verse 56. This is, again, the word of the living God. Let's give attention to it, and it's reading this evening. Mark 6, beginning with verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Amen. This is the word the living and true God. It was January 9th, 2007, when Joshua Bell sold out Boston Symphony Hall. Seats were nearly $100 each. Bell plays a violin worth more than $3 million and is one of the best musicians in the world. Three days later, he entered a metro station in Washington, D.C., wearing casual clothing and a ball cap. He opened his case and played his violin for 45 minutes. Only six people stopped. Twenty gave money, a total of $32. But no one recognized him. His true identity, his true identity was veiled. In our text this evening, we have the glory, not of a mere human but of the Son of God who comes to his people and displays his glory. It may be veiled, and indeed it was veiled in human flesh, but still there nonetheless. When you are in the presence of the great I Am, do you respond to that glory with awe? Even as the disciples here in this event that we know quite well, we know the story even as they stood in astonishment as to what had just taken place. Perhaps you might be tempted to think that the reason they, they were so astounded is because he uh, was able to command the waves and the sea to be still. They were able to do what, what we certainly cannot do, and I suspect that that would be one reason for us to be astounded by him. But that isn't the point of this text at all. He is, of course, creator, and he, as the great I am, is able to still the waters and, and to cause these things to happen as one who made them all. 
the point of the text is to show his disciples something that has been veiled to them for quite some time. He is intending to show them through his labors, through his work, through his person, something of his glory. He does it in a way that is, well, rather striking. If you read carefully through the passage, you'll notice it quite obviously, and hopefully by the end of this sermon you will see it as I show it uh, to you. But again, the question remains, do we today behold the glory of Christ in such a way that we stand in amazement of Him? Not just what He can do, but who He is. Because He is the great I Am. He is the God of heaven. And He has come in the flesh, though veiled now the glory that He held with His Father before all worlds He comes here and even in this passage now wants to show his disciples something of the glory. How do you respond to him when you hear him as he feeds you the very bread of the word of God? Far beyond a mere man is the glorious son of God who comes to rescue his people from their greatest trouble. Now, the context is, as we have saw already this morning, they have just come out of that event in which Jesus, out of a heart of compassion, he feeds the 5,000 men, the 20 to 25,000 people. He's demonstrated that compassion on the disciples and on the crowd. But now Mark, he shows us, and, and as he is... Uh, Typical of Mark, he moves rapidly into the next item of which he wants to show us something of Christ. He moves now to show us something of the glory of the Savior given to us really in two scenes. First, the scene in which there is trouble. There is trouble on the sea, the Sea of Galilee. And then second, the peril of people and the effects of sin in the world that has come to them and the way they respond, and how he indeed responds to them. And so this evening, I want to show you, with the help of the Spirit of God, the the glory of the Son of God as the great I Am, as the one that saves mankind from their troubles. In these two scenes, I simply want to show you something of the glory of the Son of God as the great I Am, as the one that saves mankind from their troubles. Two points as we look at these two scenes here given to us by Mark. The first point is by far the longest um, of the two, but first we'll consider the rescuing Savior, and then we will see the restoring Savior. The rescuing Savior and the restoring Savior. Let's first consider the bulk of the sermon, which will land in this first point the rescuing Savior. That's the first scene we have here and from verses 45 through verse 52. Note immediately, as Mark says it, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he stayed behind, he stays back and dismisses the crowd that had been there during this event that we considered even this morning. And so we know right away that the disciples themselves are alone. Uh, They're in a boat. They're going across the Sea of Galilee. They are making their way, as their master has commanded them, to the other side of the sea. 
Jesus stays behind. He is not with them. He dismisses the crowd along with the twelve. And then he takes up this labor of prayer. Mark tells us as much when he says this in verse 46. After he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. He gets alone by himself that he might pray to his Father in heaven. And whenever the Savior was at a particular turning point in his ministry, and this is one of those points, he would often get alone uh, to pray. This example teaches us many things, I think, as Christians, and, and, and really important as it is, as we face decisions in our lives, turning points, if, they were, if you will, who we should marry, uh, what school we should go to, what job should we take, and whether we should even take a job, a job offer that comes to us. All of these things that we have to evaluate from time to time, those are markers in our lives. They're markers in your life. Those, those, those high points that, that you can look back on and you can check and you can see the very hand of God working in the life of Christ. And whenever those moments occurred, he would first get alone to pray. One of the other times in which Jesus recognizing the importance of prayer was when he appointed, when he called to himself his 12 disciples. Before he ever did that, he got alone and prayed uh, to his father. Now, it is quite true, I know, that you, all of you, live very busy lives. We're all very busy. Um, but it's interesting, as you consider just church history and just a simple reflection upon one particular individual in church history, Martin Luther himself, it has been recorded, it has been known of him that he would pray one hour a day, nonstop. Some have said it's been, it was four hours. It just depends, I guess, on who you read, but let's just go with the one. But it's also been reported that Luther, when he had an especially busy day, or especially busy things going on in his life, he wouldn't short thrift prayer. He would multiply it. He would pray two hours a day. Why? Because he understood the importance of prayer, especially when contemplating difficult circumstances or issues or turning points in his life. It's no different from the Savior. He gets alone to pray. A concerted time by which he engages his Father in heaven and prays before him and seeks his face as he labors to minister on earth. We, too, must have those times. It's not just at those turning points of our lives in which we spend time in prayer when we have to make important decisions. But we should always be people of prayer. We should give ourselves to this ministry of prayer on a daily basis, a concerted time, perhaps as an individual, perhaps as families, both as we seek God's face as families or as individuals, regardless of what we may be facing each and every day. I've given you some, uh, I guess, pastoral advice, perhaps, uh, about how to begin your day and recognizing that you don't know what the day even brings or even holds for you. But to ask the, the God of heaven, your Father, for the spiritual wisdom that comes from his Spirit as you start that day, perhaps a few moments before you even get out of bed in the morning or as you get out of bed and you pour that first cup of coffee or tea or whatever it is you drink, Mountain Dew. Ugh. Well, anyway, we should have these concerted times of 
prayer, a deliberate and intentional activity in prayer. Jesus does this. This is the Son of God. This is the Lord of glory, and He sees the importance of prayer. And so He prepares for the event that is about to take place in prayer. Then, as He's praying, what happens? Well, He notices, He sees them, those disciples, making headway, working their way across the Sea of Galilee um, to the other side as He is told them to do. And so while Jesus is praying, he sees the trouble of the disciples on the sea. Notice how Mark sets this up for us in verse 48. And he saw that they were making headway painfully. This is simply to say that this was no easy task. There were, there were the difficulties facing these men as they are making their way across the Sea of Galilee. Now, we have to know something a little bit about them. It would be one thing to put me in a boat and tell me to go across the sea, and it's painful and it's difficult and arduous. That would be expected. I don't know anything about it. I'm not a boat. I don't know much about boats. I don't like to fish. And so I would really want to have nothing to do with this this endeavor. But these men are fishermen. These men are skilled at what they are doing. They are not some rookie novice uh, going across the sea. They've been on this sea multiple times. This is not unusual to them. They are very well acquainted with this activity. So the storm, as it is here given to us, this wind that is against them, it must have been significant because they are making painful headway, rowing with all their might, they didn't have motorboats back then. They were rowing in some way, shape, or form to try to get to the other side, and they're not having much success. It's terrifying to them as to what is taking place. It must have been some storm to scare skilled fishermen who are well acquainted with this sea that they've been on many times. But notice also, it, it, this is not noon It's not in broad daylight when things would be a little easier, I suspect, that they could see with a little more um, visual acuity. acuity. No, no, the the text tells us that it was the fourth watch of the night. Now, in our language, that is between roughly three and six in the morning. And unless I miss my guess, it's typically pretty dark between three and six a.m., And so there they are on this sea. They're rowing with all their might. They're not making much headway. Things are painfully, are progressing painstakingly. And not only that, they can't really see very well as to what is taking place. It's not like they had spotlights. They could just light up the sea and see what was going on. No, no, it was dark. Very dark. The situation is ominous for these people. In obedience to the Savior, they... They set out to do this. They are working to go across the sea to the other side. And Jesus sees them. As he is engaged in that that time of, of prayer with his Father, he sees what they are going through. And he knows the hardship that they are facing. It's hard not to see the echoes that Mark is driving us towards 
when we think back to the Old Testament narrative all the way back in the Exodus, I've often said that the Pentateuch is so essential to understanding the, in the entirety of the Bible. And I've always thought, well, if I ever were to go on for advanced studies, this is an area of the Bible I'd, like, I'd love to really deal with more. But this echoes for us the very words that we have at the end of Exodus chapter 2, where we see and we know the story, we know the people of Israel, they're languishing 430 years, generations have come and generations have gone, and they've been subjected to the wickedness of a cruel taskmaster, not a pharaoh that Joseph uh, 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 knew, but a new pharaoh, a wicked pharaoh, a wicked king, and these people are suffering Just like the disciples are suffering, they're making their way painfully across the sea. These people here are languishing in Egypt. And if we note at the end of Exodus chapter 2, these very words, it's almost identical to the words that Mark gives to us. We read there, God saw the people of Israel. He saw them and God knew. He didn't just see what they were going through. He knew intimately, personally, what it is his people were struggling with. Jesus Christ himself, here in this text, he sees and he knows what his people are wrestling with. And so, as he is often wont to do, as he often does, he determines to go to them. He determines to go, and as you would expect, he would come as as God did through Moses in the Old Testament in the Exodus. Here he does as the greater Moses. He he comes to to rescue his people. He comes to rescue them from from their peril, from their struggle, as he often does and has done for all of us, those who have embraced the gospel and loved the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it not true, friends, that he has rescued you from the greatest struggle? That struggle with sin in the world that we live in. He has come. He has done that work. He has rescued us. He comes to rescue them, and he comes to do so in such a way that, frankly, is odd. Read carefully the words that Mark gives to us. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. It's the very next phrase. It doesn't say that he rescued them and we move on to the next thing. What a great... He re- Good, that would have been fine, but that's not what Mark says. Mark gives this very curious statement that should make us stop and think about what it is that he is trying to show us and what it is the Savior is trying to show his disciples and us through this passage, this presentation of Christ's glory. Now, the word is not used in the passage, but it's there. I want to show you why in just a minute. Christ sets out to, to meet them on the other side of the sea. Uh, the amazing allusions to the glory of Christ. First note, he walks on the sea. Well, okay, Gee, pastor, I mean, he's God. I mean, what's the big deal? I mean, I can't do that, but he certainly can. Yeah, but if you don't understand your Old Testament, then you miss this first allusion to him showing forth something far greater than merely rescuing them from the terrible peril of the sea that they are laboring upon. You miss first something of the glory of Christ being presented. He walks on the sea. There's an allusion to this that God alone is the one that walks 
on the sea. You question me, you can. Go back to Job chapter 9. Or you can just let me read the verse and listen. Job chapter 9, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. This is a direct reference to Jehovah. Here, even in this earliest book of the Old Testament, we have a reference to the glory of God who walks on the sea. It is God alone who does that. Second, God alone parts the sea and rescues his people from difficulty. Now, he's not going to part the Sea of Galilee here, but he's certainly going to rescue them from difficulty. One of my favorite passages in all of the Bible, in Isaiah 43, we have very much these words. And it, verses, one, uh, verses 15 through 17, I am the Lord your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lay down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. Now, undoubtedly, this is a direct reference to the Exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea. But here, Jesus, he's not just parting the sea and walking on dry ground. He is as creator as God himself. He is walking. He is defying physics. And he is walking on water in a way that, well, don't try that at home. Because you're not bound to make it from one side to the other. But he does this. Why? That he might show forth his glory as God as the Son of God. It's quite clear, isn't it, that the intention of the Savior was to rescue the twelve disciples. This is why he departed from his mountaintop in prayer to come and rescue them. But notice Mark doesn't say that. He says to them, he intended to pass by them. You can only picture the scene in your mind's eye. Here are these 12 men, these disciples are rowing with all their heart. They can't, see, they can't see four feet in front of their own face. And it's, the waves are crashing around them. The wind is, ru- is rushing in on them. It is difficult. It is hard. And Jesus leaves his mountaintop. And you would think that Mark would simply say, after he walks on the water, he came and he rescued them from that mess. He calmed the sea and it was all done. We move on to the next story. And that's not what he says. He says he meant to pass by them. And you think, well, what does that good is that going to do? Well, his intention, of course, was always to rescue them, but his true intention in this passage is to show his disciples something of his glory. Jesus passed by them, Mark tells us. There are four possible reasons as to why this has been, this phrase is here. First, The verb translated meant, could mean, was about to, as translated by the New International Version, or if you will, the New Inferior Version. Okay, sorry, I probably shouldn't have said that. It's not the best, in my opinion, the best translation to use for deep study. It's not a bad one, it's a dynamic equivalent, but be that as it may, that's how it is translated in the NIV. In this case, it is the perspective of the disciples that is in view here rather than Jesus' intention. Now, you have to decide 
as a Bible student, whether that's really the intention that Mark is trying to get to here. Second possibility, Jesus passing by them is to make himself visible to the twelve to relieve them of their fear from the trouble they were in. You know how this is. When I was a boy growing up, I hated lightning storms. It scared me half to death. And that's an understatement. I would quiver in my bed. I would whimper. My father would get irritated with me. Um, But what would I do? Well, I'd run. I'd jump in my parents' bed. I'd want to be in the presence of my parents. Why? Because the storm went away? No. Had nothing to do with that. It was their presence. That was all I needed, and I felt safe. Perhaps this is the intention that Mark here is giving. But it is really, truly unlikely given the response of the disciples. Notice what they say. It's a ghost. Doesn't really work, does it? Third, third possibility. I'm building up to the, what I believe to be the right answer, so hang on. It could be a Hebrew idiom meaning to spare from disaster. This is taken directly from Amos chapter 7 which says in verse 8, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of the people Israel. I will never again pass by them. And so it's an idiom of Hebraic nature that perhaps Mark is using. Okay, you decide as you study this passage out for yourself. But what I believe is the best understanding of this phrase that Mark here puts here, curiously, strangely even, is that it was an intentional echo of the Old Testament language of a theophany, where God reveals himself to his people by passing by them. If this is true, and I'm convinced it is, then it again strengthens the argument that this narrative is not so much about rescuing the disciples per se, that he's going to do that, but it's more about showing to the disciples something that they haven't really seen before. And that is something about that which is behind the veil. That is the glory of the Son of God. If you flip back to Exodus 33, just to demonstrate or prove to you why I assert this, again, right in the Pentateuch, again foundational to our understanding of the New Testament, Exodus chapter 33, beginning with verse 18. Now, you know the story, at least you should, This is that event in which Moses, of course, what does he want to see? He wants to see his glory. He wants to see the glory of God. Not unlike you and me who desire to see that, and one day you will see it in all of its glory, all of its fullness. Exodus 33, beginning in verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Now what is this thing he's going to do? Well, Moses has interceded for the people. Why? Because in Exodus 32, we have this tragedy occur. The people of God compel the high priest Aaron to erect a golden calf, and they call that golden calf their redeemer, the God who freed them from Exodus. They worship this golden calf. They basically, uh, they basically engage in revelry and partying and crowd. It's terrible, horrible scenario. God says to Moses, get down off this mountain, for your people have profaned themselves. Moses then goes down, deals with them, comes back, and he intercedes on behalf of the people. Verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. 
Frankly, it's a, it's a wonderful prayer. It's a wonderful appeal. We, we should want to see the glory of God. One of the things I pray for our worship services every Lord's Day is that we we'd see something of the glory of God in the acts and the, the things that we are here doing. And so Moses says, he, he, he pleads with God, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness, now note, pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I, show, whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory, now note, while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but you shall not see my, but my face shall not be seen. Moses saw with his own eyes, the glory of God passing by him. Much in the same way as Mark here gives it to us, as he says to us, he meant to pass by. His intention was to rescue the disciples, but first and foremost, he wants to show them something of the glory of himself. That glory that has been veiled by human flesh. First Kings chapter 19 Again, an, another reference to this idea, and I'm laboring to show you. 1 Kings chapter um, 19. Verses 10 uh, through uh, 12. Well, let's just back up to verse 9. It's easier. There he came to a cave. This is the Lord speaking to Elijah. Now, you know who Elijah is. He's one of the, the, the speaking prophets. He's not a writing prophet. You know, Elijah, the, the man who took on the prophets of Baal and at Mount Carmel, one of the funniest stories in the Bible, if you ask me. A man who took on Ahab, the, the, the wicked king, but was petrified of Jezebel. She was worse than him, by the way, much worse. There he came to a cave. This is after this great event, this glorious event. And what happens? There he came to a cave, lodged in it. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. He's despairing. And I, even I only, Am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Woe is me. Okay. You gotta understand, this is how he feels. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. The glory of the Lord Himself, the God of heaven, passed by this prophet of the Lord. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke it in pieces, the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And you go on and read the conclusion of this. But his glory, the glory of God, passes by Elijah to comfort him, to encourage him, 
to show him. And he goes on to say, hey, look, you're not the only one, by the way. There's plenty of other people that have not bowed the knee to Baal. I'm convinced that Mark here is directly alluding to these events that we might then see something of the glory of Christ. And so after he passes by them, he turns to them, and notice how Mark puts it. He brings comfort to them, first by showing them something of his glory. When they saw him, of course, they, they were terrified. They thought it was a ghost. They cried out, skilled fishermen. But immediately, he speaks to them. He speaks to them. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Two issues, perhaps, are here as given by Mark's account. First, notice when he says, but immediately, in verse 50, he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. A direct connection between his, his desire to show his disciples his glory, he now speaks to them as the great I am. Our English Bibles don't do us any favors there when it says, take heart, it is I. Literally, that word there is in the Greek. It is literally, take heart, a go, a me, I am. That has far more implications to bring comfort to weary people than the simple phrase as the ESV translates it, it is I. No, no, it's I am. It is the great I am who is speaking a further revelation of the glory of the Son of God as the I am of Exodus 3, where Moses is assured that God has heard the cries of his people. The great I am who meets with Moses at the burning bush and speaks to him and says, I have surely seen the the affliction of my people. I have seen their distress. And I am now commissioning you, Moses, to go and rescue my people. Well, who should I say is sending me, he says to him, and he says, I am that I am. This is exactly what Jesus is doing. He is speaking hope into his distressed disciples that the glory of Christ and the great I am will indeed relieve them from their struggles. Practically speaking, there's a certain comfort that comes from hearing just the voice of Christ. Just like there is a certain comfort from hearing the voice of a loved one during distress, during heartache, or, or grief, or sorrow. How many times have you just longed from the, from the, for the kind words of a loved one or friend during times of great difficulty? But Jesus speaks to them. He uses his own voice. Take heart, I am, it is I. Do not be afraid. Elsewhere, Jesus tells us very plainly that his sheep hear his voice and they follow him. There's a comfort in hearing the voice of the shepherd who's seeking to lead and guide them to the place in which they will find rest for their very souls. Christ does that every Lord's Day. Friends, he does it. He does it through a raspy voice that's languishing under a terrible cold, but he does it as the word of God is proclaimed. He's speaking to you. 
He's speaking hope. He says, look, I know the troubles you are in. I know the circumstances that you find yourself. I know the struggles. I know the sicknesses that you endure. I know the diseases that are racking your body. I know the sorrow you feel about loved ones who have not yet acknowledged me as Lord and Savior. He, he knows about the relational struggles, the financial grief, all, all of it. And he speaks to you. And he speaks out of his glory as the great I am who sees your distress and seeks to bring comfort to you, his people. Presumably, of course, the disciples heard them. Verse 51, and he got into the boat with them. Again, demonstrating something of his compassion for his beleaguered disciples. He doesn't stand off on the shore and wait for them to arrive. But he gets into the boat with them, and no sooner does he get in that boat, the wind stops. Mark's account doesn't even speak to the fact that he speaks to it. It just says by his very presence with his people, the troubles and trials that they were facing cease to exist. Now, we need not press this beyond its breaking point. The presence of Christ does not necessarily mean the alleviation or the removal of trials, but it does make it far more easier to go through. And here in his wisdom, he decided to calm the seas in his presence, but there he is with them on the sea. His presence brings hope and comfort to his beleaguered disciples. And so the disciples, they're astounded. Wouldn't you be? If you were to witness all of this that has happened as I've explained it to you, would you not be astounded? Wow. He speaks as the God of heaven. He shows something. He pulls back the veil just enough that they behold the God of heaven. He speaks to them as the God of heaven who sees their distress. He gets in the boat with them, and he's with them in their distress. And he rescues them from their trouble. They're astounded at what they witnessed, but that astonishment didn't change them. Notice how Mark concludes it. Verse 52, for they did not understand about the loaves, but... Their hearts were hardened. They still have work to do. The Savior still has work to do in their hearts, in their minds, even as He does with us each time we hear from Him. He's working on us. We are all, you are all works in progress. None of you are where you ought to be. I'm not where I ought to be, but I am moving in the right direction, Lord willing, and so are you. We ought not harden our hearts to the glory of Christ and his speaking to us and his presence with us. We ought to listen and to heed and stand not only in astonishment to him, but then let that astonishment turn us to praise and worship and obedience to what God has said. And so Jesus, having shown his glory as the great I am that saves his people, he now turns to the crowd. This is the second scene. This crowd that, that he seeks now to restore through a display, once again, of his compassion on the plight of sinners. Those that have been influenced by a fallen world. That's all of us. 
And so this restoring Savior here in this event in which we have in verses 53 through 56, we know first the compassion of the Savior. It's really, in some sense, a summary statement. As we read about these events, wherever, verse 56, wherever he came, in villages, cities, countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that he might touch even the fringe of his garment. And we know what happens. As many as touched it were made well. He had a heart and a passion for the souls of men. Wrecked by sin, ruined by sin, the ruination of sin and the influence of sin into the physical bodies of many around him. He shows his compassion as I've shown you even this morning. Again, he shows it here as a summary of the very ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. All that he did for sinners was out of a heart of love and compassion for them. We too, as those that know something of his compassion, we have received it by virtue of the fact that our eyes have been opened to the truth. We know who we are and we know who he is as the great I am. We've seen something of his glory. We behold it by faith now. We have been healed not necessarily from physical ailments, but we have been healed that, of that greatest illness that affects every human being. And that is, of course, our sinfulness, our sinful nature. And so how do the, the people respond? Well, there's a big difference. It's almost as you contrast the response of the crowds over against the 12 disciples whose hearts were hardened, the people are zealous to run to the Savior. These that went and saw and heard that he was there, they would run to him that they might find hope, that they might find help in their time of need. The hardness of the heart of the twelve, but eventually it turns again to the hardness of the people later. As they crucify the Lord of glory, as they cry out in that day and exchange him for a criminal. The Savior who rescues, the Savior who restores sinners. Mark wants us to see these things in this, these two scenes. So I've shown you the glory of the Son of God who rescues his people as the great I am. The temptation in a narrative account of such as this is, is to draw away too much from it, allegorize it in such a way that it, doesn't, it does violence to the very passage itself. But there are some clear applications that can come from this for our daily lives. Wherever you may be in your struggle as a Christian, as you pilgrim in this world, there's three, actually, that I have here. First... And these things really should not be missed in this passage. First, it is God himself that saves his people. It was Jesus himself as the great I am who saved his disciples. They didn't save themselves. They couldn't. They cried out. It was impossible. The disciples here in Mark's narrative are really a picture of God's covenant people. They represent the visible church. And the struggles that you and I face every single day of our lives, 
The great I am in all of his glory knows and sees and desires and does indeed help us, strengthen us and help us, or in, in, well, I said that already, in our, in our peril. Again, Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, the visible church. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as a ransom, as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Why? 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 Well, here's your answer. Why did Jesus leave the mountain to rescue his disciples, to show his glory to them, to declare that he is the great I am, to help them in their peril? Here's the answer. Because you are precious in my eyes. In the eyes of Christ, his people are worth all. They're worth everything. You are precious in my eyes. You're honored, and I love you. Just think on that just for a minute. You love me? I'm not worthy of your love. But he does. He loves his church. He loves his people. And this is what he does here as he sees his 12 disciples as a picture of his church, as a picture of the covenant people of God. He loves them by showing them himself. And he speaks to them. He rescues them. He restores them. Second, and subordinate really to the picture given to us, it's not unimportant to the picture Mark paints of the glory of the Son of God, is the reality that God is with us through his Holy Spirit. This is something the Twelve have yet to grasp. They haven't had that benefit, as it were, that you and I have. It's really a picture of God with us through His Holy Spirit. And third and finally, as recipients of the ministry of the Savior through His Spirit today and the preaching of His Word, the question for you and me after hearing a sermon like this or any sermon is are you hardening your heart to the person and work of Christ or are you allowing the Spirit of God to soften you to see the great I am in His glory as one who rescues you, saves you, loves you, calls you the apple of His eye, precious in His sight. Whatever it is you're facing, you can always appeal to the fact that the God of heaven who made heaven and earth sees me, knows me, loves me, helps me, strengthens me, guides me, will never leave me alone. It is He alone that saves us. Our response is very simple then, isn't it? We repent of our hard hearts, if that is indeed the case. We believe in Him and the message He brings as the rescuing and restoring Lord of heaven and earth, the Savior in all of His glory, who shows to us, to you and me, sinners all, something of his favor for the people he came to save. That's you, that's me, that's us this evening. 
as we consider the glory of Christ and how it's applied to the favored people that he rescues and restores for his glory and for our good. Amen. Let us pray. Father, as we look, as we have looked at your word this evening, as we have considered these passages that we know so well, may we stand back in awe of you who show us your glory. We are sinners, but yet you have done so. You have showed us your glory. You have spoken to us as the great I am. You have saved us. You have rescued us. And who are we that you are even mindful of us? But indeed we are important to you. And so may you remind us, help us each and every day of our lives to lay hold of the fact that you are for us and you will never let us go. Be gracious to us and help us, comfort us in our time of struggle. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen.